Welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans in arts and culture. I'm Katherine Hong, a writer and editor. And I'm Juliana Sohn, a photographer. Today, we're thrilled to interview artist and graphic designer Ji Lee in his studio in Brooklyn. Born in Korea and raised in Brazil, Ji is one of the most influential designers working in the country today. He is a creative director at Facebook, where he's worked since 2011. Previously, he worked at Google Creative Lab, Droga5, and Saatchi and & Saatchi but it's his wide range of witty and subversive personal projects that have won him the adoration of the design world. Whether he's working with typography, miniatures, videos, or found images, he's constantly challenging the way we see the world and communicate with each other. If you live in New York City, you might remember something he did called the Bubble Project, where he created thousands of cartoon speech bubble stickers and stuck them on advertisements all over the city. He also helped create the Instagram phenomenon, Drawing for My Grandchildren, which features the artwork of his 76-year-old father. We have so many questions for you, G. Welcome. Thank you very much. I will start. I know that you lived in Korea and then moved to Brazil and then New York. Can you tell me about what life like was in Korea early on? Yes, I was born in Seoul, Korea. Both of my parents were uh, high school teachers. They're both uh, artistic. My mom always wrote. Uh, my dad was interested in becoming a singer, but also a talent for drawing. Growing up in Korea, you know, I grew up in a typical sort of a middle class. Both of my parents were being teacher. I uh, lived in a neighborhood called Hagokdong, which I think is uh, sort of, you know, far from the center. There were hills and mountains where I used to live. And I had a very typical, uh, normal childhood. My life completely changed when we immigrated from Korea to Brazil. Uh, My grandfather, from my mother's side, uh, had the idea of first immigrating. So my mother's family is from North Korea, and they fled uh, during the Korean War to the South. Uh, My grandfather was an adventurous man. You know, he always, always trying to try new things. And I think he heard from a friend that there was an opportunity uh, for immigrants in Brazil. And at the time, this, you know, we're talking about early 70s, mid 70s, a lot of Koreans, I think, ended up going to United States, but it was, uh, I think, not as easy to immigrate to the States. So I don't know, I have to ask my mom, but specifically why we went to Brazil, but uh, my grandfather, who has seven children, uh, took his single children first, the four of them. And then a few years later, once they established themselves in Brazil, invited the rest of the family. So in 1981, uh, we followed uh, his footstep and my family moved from Korea to Brazil. So your parents were married and had kids, but decided to follow your grandfather. Yes, because, you know, early 80s in Korea was still, you know, Korea was uh, still considered a poor country. You know, with education being uh, a focus, uh, I think they wanted to try something new. They felt that their lives were limited in Korea at the time, uh, economically and education-wise. And uh, that's when we decided to move to Brazil. And what kind of community was there in terms of Koreans? Was there any existing? Oh, yeah. Uh, at the time, there was a fairly significant um, community of you know, Koreans. There were churches and restaurants. Uh, it, was near, it was not nearly like uh, the Korean Americans, but we could go to Korean restaurants and we could buy. There was a Korean grocery stores and churches. I still remember the first few days in Brazil. It really was like landing in a different planet uh, because... You know, at that point in my life in Korea, I had never seen a Western person in real life. I never tasted the Western food. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only point of contact of Western culture for me was watching uh, American TV shows like A Six Million Dollar Man or you know Wonder Woman and stuff like that. And the the American products like you know Spam and uh, the gums and because like the because of the GI influence in Korea those products were like really coveted. So we had this, you know, fantasy about the American Western culture, but I never seen a Western person. So live, you know, landing in Brazil for the first time. And, you know, like it really was like a going to a different planet. What uh, sort of work do the Koreans do there at the time? And what sort of work did your family end up doing? At the time, and I, I think it's still the case, most of the Koreans in Brazil were doing uh, retail business specifically related to fashion. So I think they 
follow the footsteps of the uh, Jewish community in Brazil, who for many years, uh, I mean, they came earlier than Koreans and they started with the, uh, the garment business, you know, selling textiles and manufacturing clothing. So most of the Koreans at the time were doing that. Uh, so they had Jewish landlords and, you know, making clothing and selling. And that's how my grandparents started. Uh, you know, they went to Brazil uh, and my Grandfather probably had a few thousand dollars in his pocket and had a sewing machine. And when they landed in Brazil, they had no money to start a new business. So what they did was they go to a Korean store, buy a bunch of Korean clothing, uh, clothing they made, and, and what they call potari jangza, which is a, a, a selling through big bags. So they'll take a big bag full of clothes, they take a bus, go far away, and then put it outside on the street and start selling. Uh, without speaking much Portuguese. And that's how they started their business. When my parents went, you know, they were not <clears throat> as drastic of taking a bus, but uh, they still put tari jangza, which is, the, you know, they went to the store by store and bought wholesale clothing and then went to the retail store with a small profit. That's how they started. You know, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about the connection with the garmentos and how immigrants start with that. Right. Did your parents and your family, they eventually save up money to have a, like, a brick and mortar store? Yeah. You know, we had a very comfortable life, you know, typical middle class. We're not rich, but, you know, we went to good school. Uh, and eventually my parents ended up manufacturing clothing. But they were not really, never business people. They were more, you know, teachers and artist type. So um, they're successful enough for us to have a comfortable life. Yeah, that's 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 what our life. We had a very typical Brazilian Korean immigration life. Jumping ahead a little further, what were you like in high school? What was that experience like for you in Brazil? It was a really it was an amazing experience to go to Brazil. You know, Brazilians are very nice people in general. They're very welcoming, and I I adapted uh, really quickly. You know, I was still I was ten, still early. So I went and played soccer with the local boys. Uh, I went to a Catholic school in Brazil. So I had to, you know learn things very quickly. Uh, the language was still a barrier, and I think that had a, a tremendous impact to uh, what I still do today is to how to effectively communicate, you know, how to come to the essence of things because I was limited in communicating verbally. So I had to find different ways to communicate. It was, a, for me, a, a way to get out of the situation or survive in that first years. But the process was very smooth for me. Um, and actually, you know, in Brazil, we benefited, as a Korean Brazilian benefited uh, because of a huge Japanese population that went there many, many years ago. I think there's, you know, like four or five generations of Japanese. So the fact that they went there first and established themselves, people were familiar with the, uh, the Asian culture, all those things helped. But there was a still a little bit of, uh, you know, poking fun at um, Asian people, like they would, uh, you know, pull their eyes and, you know, like make fun of the Asian folks. And they called us uh, all Japanese, uh, Japanese, right? Because I, that's how Brazilians know what Asian uh, here is like maybe Chinese, but uh, there is a Japanese. So, so I am fascinated because Korea is so structured, very um, you know Confucian uh, society, and then you go from that to Brazil, which is you know has a reputation for being incredibly emotive and emotional and very free. So, did you notice a difference? Oh yeah. Well, I was ten, so I in Korea. I don't remember being in a very strict environment. I think both of my parents were very liberal. They were very open-minded uh, for being Korean at the generation. So I never felt uh, the Korea society at the time from, at my age was very strict. But maybe if I stayed a little bit longer and going to high school, maybe I felt a little bit more the pressure. But my life in Brazil, I completely assimilated to becoming a Brazilian. And I dated Brazilian girls. I never dated Korean folks. My best friends were Brazilian. I traveled with Brazilian. <clears throat> so there was a little bit of the identity conflict for me because my mom always told me, okay, it's okay for you to date a Brazilian, but in the end, like, you have to marry a Korean woman. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, 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 whatever. So can you uh, describe, like, how did you decide to go to college in New York? So I was always interested in art and drawing, uh, probably because of the influence of my parents. And I just knew from early on, like, I want to be an artist. With that intent, you know, when I graduated from high school, my parents were, you know, they were well off enough uh, to send me to New York to study in art school. Uh, you know, tuitions were very expensive. 
But you know, at the time, my parents had a good store and they were doing okay, so they felt confident that they could pay for the tuition. So that's when I applied for a bunch of school, you know, Pratt, SVA, and mm -hmm. Parsons, and I got accepted uh, in all of them. And that's how I came to New York. That was 1991. I feel like you are one of these students that graduated almost like fully formed in your visual identity as a designer and uh, like you got snatched up right like as your senior show um, launched. Um, can you tell us about that? I mean, I, I feel like your career has been like on a trajectory ever since college. When I came to Parsons, uh, I mean, it was like heaven for me because I just did things that I was interested because mm -hmm. it was all about art and creativity. So it didn't feel like work to me. I would stay up uh, every night and doing those projects. It was a fun and joy just to work on those things. I did that for four years and it was uh, the best time. In the end, um, I, I had a good portfolio uh, and there was a, when there was a Parsons senior show, uh, when you know you have a little booth and every student put their work out there and put a little bit of a business card and you hope get hired. And I already had a job uh, uh, that I had already accepted uh, by a corporate design studio called Frankfurt Baukine, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. But Stefan Zagmeister, who at the time was already a famous uh, graphic designer, uh, came to my show and he liked my work and you know he gave me his business card, asked me to come by to his studio. Uh, he had the small studio on the 13th Street on the west side, and he offered me a job, uh, which was a huge honor because, again, he was a really famous guy. Uh, but I uh, had already accepted the job at Frankfurt Balkan, and I was in conflict, and I ended up, you know, uh, uh, saying politely, saying, no, thank you, because I already have a job. But uh, he ended up becoming my mentor. Uh, from that point, we still are friends, and I still come to talk to him from time to time. I just met him last week for dinner. Well, I'm curious, how did you decide that graphic design was what you want to focus on as oh, opposed to drawing okay. or painting? It's a good question because, again, you know, I wanted to become a, a fine artist. So I ended up going to fine art uh, my second year at Parsons. First year, you did the foundation year, like everybody does the same thing. And second year, you decide your major. And I went into the fine arts. And... I didn't really enjoy the program that much because it was very theoretical. You do, uh, you know, make a painting and then bring it, and you spend spend like four hours theorizing yeah. about the painting, yeah. about art history and the concept. And I was more interested in making stuff. Uh, and many of the professors were frustrated artists uh, and just like theorizing about stuff. And I wasn't really into that stuff. And then after. The first semester, I decided to switch my major. I just didn't know what to do. And then I saw you know, fashion is a really strong, but I didn't want to go to the fashion uh, department. And there were like product design, graphic design. And I liked what uh, the graphic design students were doing because it felt still creative, but they were learning a trade, uh, uh, something that they could find a job with. So I decided I should go into graphic design. And I loved it from the, the moment I went to design, graphic design, because it was very artistic, it was very creative, but it was very practical. <laughs> there was no like a theorizing bullshit, you know? It was all about, okay, technique and typography and learning specific things. Uh, and, I, and I love the combination of creativity and practicality. So I think it's really interesting that you started out fine art, you moved to graphic design, and uh, knowing a little bit about your work history, um, it feels like you don't really fit comfortably in graphic design either because it's very limiting for the kind of work you do. And uh, I'm not sure if Deborah Kalman had felt some of the same restraints, um, but I feel like he was able to comfortably comfortably inhabit that design space and express himself. But I feel like you're almost like busting to like move out of that. And I see that in like the bubble project and your miniatures. And it's almost like you have so many ideas and it almost, def you know, it can't be defined and limited by graphic design. And I wanted to ask you about how you work on your personal projects. Mm. Well, after about two years of graphic doing graphic design, 
I really wanted to get into advertising because I grew up in Brazil watching some of the great commercials. Brazil is really famous for their uh, TV campaigns. And I wanted to do stuff like that because there's a culture defining thing. So I wanted to get into advertising. I just didn't know how to because I had no portfolio with ad and I didn't know anybody. And it's funny how things happen in life when you, you know, put a thought into the universe and how the things take care of itself sometimes. So when I was a junior at Parson, it was the time that they first introduced the, like the whole computer lab. You know, I was transitioning from the mechanical computer in my times in, at Parson. I sound very old saying that, but it's true. Um, in the computer lab, they introduced a class for a 3D design, and there was a program called Adobe Dimension. And it was a 3D program, very crude 3D program, the first probably by Adobe. And I was experimenting with it, and there was a tool that you could use to revolve on a, a, a two-dimensional thing. So you, you can make a, let's say, a square, and you uh, can revolve that thing to become like a three-dimensional object. And I did that with object, but I tried that with also with letters. So oh, I could maybe try to create a 3D alphabet with it. and I ended up revolving these letters and made the 26 letters that became 3D and I called it Universe Revolve because I used the font called Universe. And then I had my portfolio uh, with that 3D alphabet thing and then I got a job at a small design studio uh, called uh, Design Writing Research uh, by, at the time, very famous designer, uh, Abbott Miller. And, and this was junior year? Yes, I, so I got an internship there. Um, and he liked the 3D alphabet. At the time, he was just about to publish a small book about called Dimensional Typography. So he included a, a spread in there. That's amazing, yeah. as a junior in college. It was, yeah, it was a, probably the, one of the biggest opportunities for me. But it was a small, you know, it wasn't like a big a book. It was a very niche, a small book that was probably well-known in the design community. So... Somehow, an editor or writer in the New York Times saw that book. And at the time, they were publishing a New York Times Sunday magazine dedicated to technology. And she got in touch with me and asked me if she could use that uh, font for their upcoming magazine as like a future font through a 10-page article. Of course, I was thrilled. That came out. And at the same time, so it's, it's all about timing. You know, it's just really amazing how things happen. So at the time, Saatchi and Saatchi, a huge global agency, was organizing a thing called the Innovation Communication Award for the first time. So their thing was they wanted to give this important award to ideas that innovated in the field of communication. And they invited many uh, famous judges um, like uh, Laurie Anderson and uh, Buzz Aldrin, like some of the big names. <clears throat> Laurie Anderson happened to read that New York Times article and saw <clears throat> the font. Mm -hmm. And she got in touch with the Saatchi people and said, you guys should consider That's inviting crazy. him to participate <laughs> in this award. So I got an email from Saatchi. I said, hey, would you like, to, we're doing this thing. Do you want to participate? I said, of course. So I spent like two weeks putting together, I mean, you know, like this really good proposal, and I submitted it, and I ended up, you know, meeting all the Saatchi people. I met Laurie Anderson. I still remember going uh, to a, their gala dinner with all the ten finalists. So I ended up becoming one of the ten finalists. Amazing. So that's small things like I had an interview with design, you know, writing research, got published in a tiny book, and then the uh, New York Times person reads this, and then like the Saatchi, Laurie Anderson, this one thing led to another, and then the meeting, ended up meeting the worldwide creative officer at uh, Saatchi, and he asked me to show my portfolio, and again, like my portfolio was the design portfolio, I had no ads piece, and then he offered me a job uh, as a junior art director, my salary got doubled. I got my own office. And that's how I got into advertising. Wow. And that's the threat in my career that everything that happened was because of a personal project. Mm -hmm. All the jobs, all the opportunities, this interview uh, is all because of a personal project. And my mission in life is to share my story that this personal project 
can be transformational. And it's not because of me. It's, I believe that anyone with passion and idea through technology can change their life if they just focused on personal project and sharing more about it. Well, um, which takes us <laughs> nicely to the Bubble Project, which we've mentioned, but I don't think we've explained. And it really is a nice story because you were working in advertising at that time or getting frustrated with advertising. Is that right? Your, yeah. Your luster with uh, advertising was wearing off at that point. Oh, so let's backtrack a little bit. So I got into Saatchi and it was from, I still remember getting that job and getting my first business card that says Saatchi and Saatchi art director and having my fancy office. I thought this was like the turning point in my career. I'm going to do amazing work. I'm going to win awards. I'm going to be famous. I was so excited. And uh, little by little, I realized that uh, what I thought was going to be a really creative environment was really the exact opposite. And I think we're at the height of the, like, the political correctness at the time. It was the 90s. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do anything mildly offensive or provocative. Uh, every ideas that uh, were moving forward were tested. And brands in general, they didn't want to take any risk. They wanted to do things that they knew were safe, uh, and they just wanted to formulate stuff. And I wasn't interested in doing anything just formulate. I just wanted to try a new thing and be creative. But all my ideas just would die in the process. Uh, I'll give you an example of what the work was like. So one of the client was General Mills, a huge corporation that does all kinds of food. And one of their most iconic product is Cheerios. We got a brief from the client that said, uh, we want to communicate that Cheerio comes in five different flavors. And they wanted to put that into a billboard and print ad, which is a challenging brief to start with because you're talking about five products in one ad. But you know, my partner and I, a copywriter partner and I, we thought about it, and we decided to show the five packages. And the line was, only their holes taste the same. Because for those who don't know what Cheerio is, it's shaped like donuts. Mm -hmm. So there's a hole in there. And we presented that ad uh, idea to the client, and everybody started laughing. Oh, this is so clever. It's so funny. It's like, we love it. And we were just, you know, my partner looked partner and I, we looked at each other as well. well this is going really well. Uh, we loved it. Oh, like, maybe we're going to finally ship something. And so, you know, surely enough, one of the clients raised the hand and said, well, wait a minute. We never talk about taste. We talk about flavors in our corporate language. Uh, that's not how we talk about our product. We talk about flavors. So we started talking, okay, only their holes have the same flavor. It just doesn't have a good yeah, flavor. Exactly. It's, that's not, it's poorly written. So like for 40 minutes, we started discussing the difference between taste and flavor. And in the end, everybody was so sick and tired, they killed the idea. Uh -huh. <clears throat> and that was like the, a good example of what happened every day. And it just pains me to think about it because I was this ambitious, excited, you know, junior art director wanted to change the world through advertising. And I got defeated every single day. And at one point, after three years, I just gave up. So what I did for the probably that eight months, uh, I went to work like around 11 o'clock. I did maybe like a few meetings, 40 minutes, and I locked myself into my office and I played online chess the whole time. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't my work, right? Because um, nobody bothered me, but I was deeply frustrated because I was making stuff when I was in, in, in at Parson. I was, uh, you know, for three years, I wasn't making anything. Right, so in that three years, um, did you not have any personal projects? No, because I was so focused on doing uh, agency work because I, I really wanted to ship stuff there. I wanted to make stuff and build my portfolio there. So then how do you think this idea of, like, where did it come from? So I actually have to thank General Mills a lot because uh, the, the frustration I felt through them uh, really motivated to do stuff. So one of the other projects was... You know, they wanted to promote healthy eating to their consumers, and they also wanted to help parents and children communicate better about health, healthy eating. That was their brief. So it's a good brief. It's not like product focus. It was about behavior focus, yeah. Yeah. and it's positive and social. <clears throat> so, you know, one of the ideas that I came up with was, uh, you know, many of the family, uh, the parents are so busy, you know, they 
only see each other like in the morning and the, in the evening. And they use the fridge as a mean of communication, mm. right? They put yeah. messages there or photos, you know, like don't, don't forget to eat the salad in the fridge and so on. So I came up with that insight and I said, oh, maybe I, we can create like a, a speech bubble magnet. So when you put your photo, of your, because there are photos of the family there, and you can put that speech bubble magnet on top of the photo and then mom could tell, hey, uh, you know, Junior, make sure you eat the, you know. Uh, in the box <clears throat> of Cheerios. It's like the little toy. Well, they could do that or they could, you know, exactly, as, as a little souvenir or like a little merchandise. So we presented that idea and of course they killed it. <laughs> you know, oh, that's like everything else, right? Oh, no. For so many reasons, I don't know, you know. But also what was getting frustrating to me as a person who worked in advertising was to see the kind of ads that were getting produced from uh, the agency. They were all shitty, unintelligent, boring ads that you were just used to seeing every day. And as a resident in New York, to see these horrible ads everywhere, right? Bus stops and billboards and subway, they were just plastered. And New York has no regulations of advertising. Like in certain cities in Europe, there are strict regulations because they're considered visual pollution. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's no regulation. So anybody can just post stuff. And just to see this visual pollution uh, everywhere, it was very frustrating because I felt I was a part of the machine that produced this crap. And I wanted to do something about it. Um, so I made the connection of that speech bubble thing to the ads that I see on the street. And I said, well, I'm going to just, I'm going to make something. Because the one thing that when you work in a company, especially like in a big company, in an ad agency, for an idea to get produced, you know, like the dozens of people get involved in, produce, in producing one idea. So you forget that you can actually make some stuff by yourself because you get so used to brainwashed in that yeah. production process. <clears throat> so I think I was also sort of uh, got too used to that system. And I got, I got so frustrated. Uh, I just wanted to make stuff. So uh, that was the sort of the turning point when all my egg got killed. And then I saw the speech bubble thing. And then I just made the connection. I'm just going to make this speech bubble myself. And I, I spent $3,000 and I uh, went to a press in Chinatown. Uh, and I made 10,000 stickers. I made two sizes, small and, and one large. And whenever I went, I carried a, a bag and I placed these uh, stickers all over the New York City bus stop and telephone booth and wall postings. So what kind of ads and images did you put these stickers on? Everywhere. It was anything that had the face on it. And did you give some to friends and colleagues so that you had help or did you do it all by I, yourself? I was happy to give it away, but I don't think anybody uh, wanted to do it because uh, it is, you know, a vandalism. It's illegal. Mm -hmm. So I think it took certain uh, amount of courage to do it, and I didn't mind. Uh, I was young and I was fearless, and I actually enjoyed doing something so a little bit transgressive, yeah. yeah, against your own agency, like your own uh, yeah, um, industry. You, you yeah. just gave me the thrill. <laughs> It was like the jumping the wall a little bit, like yeah. when parents say, don't play with fire. Like, I knew it wasn't too serious. Like, I wasn't harming anybody. I wasn't doing, like, anything permanent. <clears throat> it was stickers that, you know, that could remove. So uh, I, I really felt the excitement. I'll put some, you know, Rage Against the Machine song in my <clears throat> Walkman. Okay, it was a CD player at the time. And then I go around, <clears throat> and then putting the stickers, I felt like I was, like, being this revolutionary guy. Yeah. And when did you notice people starting to write in the bubbles? Oh, it was, was it immediate? And It was immediate. And the only rule that I had that I would not never write anything inside. I would just put it and let people write. But it was immediate because New York is a very much a place where people walk around and it's during the summertime. And it's an invitation. Like you see the empty bubble, you have to do something, right? And it was also for me an instant therapy because, you know, for every ad that I got killed in the agency, oh, yeah, I just didn't... Give, give a damn anyway, I would just go out and create uh, 300 new ads. Uh, and it was so therapeutic because like by putting that ad, I could just instantly transform the meaning of the ad. And it was, it was so much fun because I would just, it was just like, a, you know, I would just put something and go back and find something written. I'd just take photos. I would spend hours and hours and I'd put it in the subway trains and I would just go between the subway trains with, you know, listen to the heavy metal music. It was just like, I was having a blast. And then I made the project open source. 
So I put a, a template of the, the sticker so people can download it and they can print it and encourage people Amazing. to do it. Yeah. Amazing. Because I wanted, there are two reasons. One is I wanted to, more people to do it. Yeah. And second reason was I didn't want to be blamed for doing this illegal thing. Because <laughs> I can always say I didn't do that, right? And it actually, it helped me because I got an email uh, from the media company, like Van Wagner. Like the lawyer wrote to me with a very threatening, really scary email. <laughs> I was like, you know, we're gonna prosecute you or blah blah blah. Creating our right, and I had to talk to the lawyer, and I said, well, uh, I didn't do it because uh, you know, like I put this template, and people do it themselves. You can see it for yourself. There are thousands of people doing it. So I didn't do it, so I'm sorry. I stopped doing it, but other people are doing that. And then I never got another email from them. And they didn't make you know. take the, uh, the they didn't thing take, down no, or anything? They, no, no. They didn't. So one of my favorite Instagram feeds is drawings for my grandchildren. And uh, I remember following it early on and then realizing that he was coming to New York. And he must have been coming to visit you because of Astro. Or I'm not sure why he was in town a few years ago. And I remember trying to get some photo editors interested in covering him. Mm. And that site must have been one of the biggest viral videos that you made. Can you talk about that project? Yeah, sure. You know, after the bubble project, I dedicated my life to focus on personal project, regardless if I had a great job or not. Because I think there's something about the personal project that people connect in a much deeper level. Because most of the project we do professionally, for the most part, we're trying to sell something. And as much ingenious and creative they can be, I think people know at the end of the day, you're servicing a corporation. And I think when people see a personal project, they know there is no financial intent. It's um, you know mostly because of a personal passion and there's certain purity in this project. And I think people connect to those projects on a deeper personal level. That's why they're more valued and they're timeless. So I did a lot of personal projects um, after that. And you know I went around the world giving talk about the transformative power personal project but it was always about working on my ideas and you know specifically objects or a typography thing so the drawing for my grandchildren happened almost by accident because the subject in the case is my is a person right it's not like a a thing a book or uh, or an object um, uh, after i came to new york my parents and my sisters stayed in brazil and they continued to do their business my sister got married and had children, and my parents, you know, about seven years ago, they retired from their work. But my mom started a new job teaching Korean to international students, Korean international students in Sao Paulo. But my father retired, and all of a sudden he had no work to do, and his daily activity was to take care of his two grandkids, Arthur and Alan, my sister's two kids. So their mom would go to work. And my father would drive them to school and then pick them up and then spend the afternoon with them. You know, they would have lunch together. So he loved his grandkids and he was uh, very uh, happy being active with them. By the time that they were, I think, six or five, my sister's husband had the opportunity in Korea. So they decided to move. You know, Brazil was going through a very difficult time. So a lot of business closed and my sister were going, going through hard times. So they ended up moving back to Korea. But my parents stayed, uh, decided to stay because my mom had still had a job. You know, they didn't know what to do moving back to Korea. But then with that, my dad lost his uh, daily activity and the joy of spending time with his grandkids. And he also had gone through uh, illness and shingles, you know, which is a very, very painful uh, thing like he had a huge rashes in his body and he never recovered from that illness and he still has a uh, chronic pain so he became very uh, passive and you know the family started to worry about him so I was starting to think well what can we do to encourage him to be a little bit more active um, and then I remember as a child my father used to be really good at drawing although he never studied art and never went to art school when he went uh, traveling with his class, like in the summer camp, instead of buying a postcard, he would uh, you know, buy little 
blank piece of paper and draw something and then send it to us. That's and, fantastic. Yeah, and I remember as a, as a young child being impressed with his uh, drawing skills. He had a very minimal pen and ink, like almost like a cartoon style, very designing style. And I knew he was talented. So I suggested he should draw again. And I suggested that he should post it on Instagram because then, you know, we can all see, right? And because I work at Facebook and I work on Instagram, I knew the tool. So it would be easy for me to talk to my mom about it. And, and my father is completely, you know, ignorant about technology. He never used Google in his life. He never had an email. He used phones to make phone calls only. But my mom, my mom was opposite because he was very curious. He had, you know, she used Facebook and Instagram and, you know, Google all the time. So I talked to my mom and uh, we agreed that uh, he would draw something. My mom would take the photo and then put it onto the Instagram account. And my, my father was uh, very annoyed about the whole thing. It's like, why should I draw? <clears throat> what is it? Why should I put it on Instagram so it was very hard to convince him, but so my mom basically forced him, right? Saying, like, okay, you're going to just draw something. So it was a fight. <laughs> uh, this is so like such a Korean story. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a very, and although my mom was very savvy, uh, you know, it was very hard to teach her how to properly take a photo and crop it properly and use the filters. Um, so it was going like this for maybe six months, like I was getting on a call talking to my mom and we were screaming at each other because oh <laughs> she's losing the patience. I'm slave driving that. <laughs> Produce. Uh, I would just tell him, like, you can just draw anything. Draw garbage can. You can still see the garbage can. There's a garbage can. So my mom, what my mom would do, she would go outside and take photos of things that she saw and then put it in front of him and then force him to draw. And then he would draw and then she would take photos and so on. And we... We said, like, can you please draw at least one thing a day? But obviously that didn't work, and it became, like, one every two days and one every week. And we were almost giving up because it was so painful. Like, everybody was pissed off, right? So we were almost giving up about this project. When my son, Astro, was born four years ago, and uh, my mom and dad came to meet him for the first time. So he spent about two weeks with us. And one evening, you know, we were eating and, you know, with a few glasses of uh, sake, and uh, he said, well, I wonder what Astro will become when he grows up. And I just asked why. I said, well, because I'm not going to be around anymore. It was a very practical conversation. It was the first time that it hit me that, wow, yes, he's 76. Then it just, you know, suddenly hit me. Oh, that's so true. And, and then I started to think about my grandparents you know, from my mom's side, I still have good memories because, uh, you know, he had a long life and I, I know who he was. But I don't know what he was when he was young. Uh, there's only like a casual oral history that my mom or my uncle, uncle told me. But I don't know anything about my father's side, my paternal grandfather. And I thought, wow, I didn't want this to be a case for Astro, right? I, did, I, I wanted Astro to know what kind of grandfather he had. So it made me sad to think about this prospect. So I started to problem solve. It's like, it's a very creative process. Like you're getting a brief from your client, right? The brief is your <laughs> father is 74, your child has just got born. How can we make sure that when your son grows up, he'll know more about his grandfather? That was a brief. So it was a creative problem solving for me. And then I just thought about the Instagram project that was not going well. And all of a sudden I had the thought, what if you drew for your grandchildren, you know, for Arthur and Alan, who is far away in Korea. So it's a big good way for you to draw something for them so they can follow the drawings, they can see what's going on in Brazil. And then for Astro, when he grows up, he can see all the things he did. How did the account take off the way it did? It just took a while. Uh, and, you know, our purpose wasn't to make this big or go viral because we just saw the value of doing this uh, for Arthur and Alan and then for, you know, posterity. But for for also our, for your for father's Astro. mental health as well. Absolutely, right? Um, but what changed was, and it was a long process, Now I had to teach my father how to use Instagram, which is in itself is a whole project. But he was much more receptive now. That's right. the difference. He was more receptive. He wanted to learn. And then you can see drawing with his new purpose. And it, I think the first drawing he did was a draw 
Astro's toy, which is a very beautiful drawing. And then he drew a bunch of things he saw in New York, like the, the water tower and the MoMA shopping bag. Oh, how iconic. Yeah, and that's one of my, still one of my favorite drawings. That was uh, really the turning point. Uh, so he went on like this for six, eight months or maybe longer, maybe a year or so. And maybe at the time he, he had a thousand followers, which we thought it was a great number of followers. In 2017 or 2015, and I remember um, for a month, I wanted to tell my dad's story on Facebook, but it was hard because uh, I was in New York and they were there. So I thought, okay, next time I go to Brazil, I'm gonna interview him and make a video. And then I'm gonna post that on Facebook because I knew this is a great story that a lot of people are gonna enjoy this. So I'm gonna tell stories in stills as a progressive story. So I did uh, this big Photoshop file with like 100 layers, starting with, uh, hi, I am G. Lee. I am a designer in New York. That will be one panel. And the next panel will be, this is my grandpa, your uh, 76-year-old uh, father. The third panel will be, he lives in Brazil. And the fourth panel will be, his, you know, daily activity is to uh, take care of his two grandchildren. He's his Arthur and Alan. So it'll be like this. You'll be seeing the progression of the story, and then I could tell the whole story in, you know, hundred, about hundred different vertical panel. So what I did was I took all those stills and then I put it into one video and I shared it on Facebook. And I thought it would be good video because it is a mobile optimized video. It's a vertical format. <clears throat> there is no voiceover. It's all visual. And I used emojis and, and it was entertaining. And I shared it. And uh, when I woke up, you know, it had gone viral already because thousands of people had seen it. They were starting sharing. There was hundreds of comments. And it follows a typical viral pattern, and then you start getting emails from newspapers oh. and BBC and Guardian and New York Post and, that, you know, Good Morning America, and it just goes on and on and on, and it just went viral. That was the turning point, and that video, I think, had, like, now has, like, nearly 7 million views on Facebook. What, I mean, what did your parents think? Were they all of a sudden celebrities? In their hometown? Absolutely, uh, because they were featured in some of the biggest Brazilian news. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the Korean Brazilian, they all knew about this. Um, so I, I, then I became quickly a, their agent. I see. <laughs> <clears throat> so I took the interviews for them, I organized the interviews. Well, how did they feel about that? My father couldn't care less. <laughs> But he was okay to do the interviews. He didn't care about the celebrity, but he was... He's he didn't care less about how many likes and, you know, like if there were like all of a sudden 30,000. He just, I don't think he knew what that meant and he couldn't care less. But funnily enough, he loved the attention, like the being in the camera. Because remember, his dream was to become a, a pop singer. Oh. So he loved the likes, the camera, <laughs> seeing himself in the video. He loved being in the stage. He loved that. He couldn't care less about how many, he doesn't, I don't think he even know how many hundred thousand followers he has, wow. which is very, and the funny thing is for a long time, and I think it's, it's, it's different, he never saw himself, even with the fame, he never saw himself as an artist. So why are people liking my work? Because I think he, in his mind, artist is like someone like Picasso in a museum. And for him, he was just doing some drawings. But nonetheless, that really changed their lives and all of our lives because, well, he had four exhibitions after that. He just published a book in Korea. National Geographic got in touch with us and offered a 10 days cruise uh, ex expedition to Galapagos. <gasps> I'll pay. Oh my gosh. They paid, uh, printed like a, I don't know, 15 page article in the National Geographic Traveler magazine. So then he drew while he was on expedition, correct? Yeah. So. I told him, well, he cannot go alone because he doesn't, you know, like he's too old and I have to come with them. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, it sounds like fun, but it's no fun to be stuck with your father, grumpy old father in a tiny cabin for 10 days. Wait, did your mom go? I wanted her to come, but they, you know, they, their budget didn't allow for three people. I would have loved my mom to come because that would have lessened the burden of, you know, I mean, you're the one saying, now time to draw. Sit now down. time to draw. <laughs> uh, you got to earn this trip. 
And the father and son relationship is very complex, and especially, you know, it's, it's my father with with me. It's not like a very we don't talk to each other. He never told me he loved me. It's a typical Korean dad thing. You know that is so interesting because you describe him as grumpy and whatnot, but the fact that he's doing this and it's such a family endeavor and this like sense of meaning and direction in his life as well as income uh, that you mm. have provided for him. I mean, it is the most touching story, yeah. and so to hear you say that, I find it so interesting because this the his uh, Instagram account touches so many people and it's so warm and evocative yeah. and he's smiling in most of those pictures yeah and that's what is so interesting <laughs> for us too he is the most docile caring person for grandkids but also people outside of family within family he's he's never talked you know only when he drinks a little bit and uh you know, I mean, as a son, I have a lot of issues uh, with him because he, he, we never, I don't think we ever had a conversation. Like, I remember when I would come to Brazil after semester, he would come pick it up. If I didn't open my mouth, we would tr go on that trip to house without one, like a one word of dialogue. I have to ask, how are you doing? How's the store? Then he will respond. Well, one thing I was so impressed by is you said he went to Seoul National, right? And mm -hmm. he didn't raise you like a typical Korean dad forcing their kids to become. Exactly. I find that so rare. Yeah. Well, because I think he himself was an artist and, you know, his dream is to become a singer. And I think he never fulfilled that dream. And only now at 76, mm. he's having that experience of being in this big, you know, front of a big audience. But um, he was a very progressive, you know. Uh, I never, never experienced homophobia or racism, which is pretty common, I think, from his generation, especially coming from Korea. Yes. So it was very liberal. And I think that's the, the gratitude that I have towards my parents of them having this such an open-minded. Uh, and they, they just trusted me and said, okay, you just do whatever you want to do. And I, you know, with my mom, uh, you know, she was being responsible with that. But sometimes I doubted, like, is it lack of interest in, in just total lack of interest, or is it, is it, is it still care about me, but he's just not, just not expressing that. So, so I have issues, you know, with my father, but I hope that um, through this project, we can at least get closer. You know, I wonder if one of the reasons why your parents are so progressive is that they're not Christian for one thing. That's true. I think that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, I mean, what a blessing that you grew up. What a blessing you're What a blessing you're Buddhist. That you grew up so open, you know, mm. open-minded. I wonder, does, what does your dad make of your success? Does he understand it? Did he know, besides being able to support yourself, did he, before the whole drawings for my grandchildren, did he understand what you were doing here? I think he understands. We never talked about it. You know, my mom is the proud mom, obviously. Like she's showing off and asking me, oh, did you ever, what's the new, new magazine thing that you appear? Uh, she's very proud. Uh, but my, we never talked about it. I mean, my dad and I, we never have conversation. I'm the one who's pulling teeth out to talk about it. So I don't really, I really don't know what he thinks. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a mystery. I'm sure he knows the success. Uh, I support him financially, been for many years. Uh, so I think he f has both a feeling of gratitude but also a feeling of guilt because of that. So I think he, the fact that now with this project, he's starting to make money, mm -hmm. it's not enough for them to be completely sufficient, but my hope that it's soon enough. Uh, you know, with the book. With the book and exhibitions and being influencers, that the serious money yeah, is going to start mean, coming. I love how your dad's an influencer. Yeah, he has cool. sponsored content. He has sponsored content. There is a major entertainment company in Korea who wants to sign him as like the, to, to present him. So I think this is going to hopefully change. And then they're, hopefully they're going to be making more money than I am making. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, he, he certainly knows about uh, my, my success. Uh, and, but we don't talk about it. 
since we're wrapping up, I, I wanted to <clears throat> touch on something that I want to, because I think maybe a lot of young designers or creative uh, are listening to this. Because <clears throat> I also taught many years at Parsons and SVA, and many of them were Korean students who come from Korea. Yeah. And um, the thing about the Korean students, uh, they're all really hardworking, they're extremely smart, and they very ambitious. Something happens that either when they go back to Korea or they continue to, to start their job here, they lose that uh, passion. I just wanted to, again, once again, the, share the, the importance of uh, focusing on that passion. I benefited tremendously so, you know, from doing this personal project, just trusting myself. And I, I think I was able to fortunately use the disadvantage of being an immigrant, right, of the, of the crisis with identity uh, and dealing with the issues with my family and turn those into problem solving and, and turning into personal project. And these things are transformational, not only for career, but also self-fulfillment, for having a, a confidence, but also, in my case specifically, uh, connecting with my parents and giving. Uh, uh, I think the biggest gift uh, that I was able to give more than money is to give them the purpose in life and new mm -hmm. career at their age. And it's not because I am creatively ingenious. It really has nothing to do with it. It's, it's, a, it's about finding the purpose. It's about understanding, in my father's case, really understanding their need and really using the technology at your service to doing something that uh, can change these people's lives. Because I really believe Regardless of your age, where you come from, how much money you have, influence you have, when you have a passion, the tools that you have at your disposal with your phone, you can change the world, you can change anyone's life. And that's really, I would love that to be the, my end message for the listeners who may have insecurities and who may have dreams that uh, they never fulfilled, that it's never too late because I lived it uh, myself and I lived it through my parents. And uh, I don't come from privileged background or my parents, but it was all about that passion and how you expressed it uh, and use technology to spread it to people around the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I really enjoyed the, the interview. I know, I, like, I have so many more questions. <laughs> K-Pod is a production of KoreanAmericanStory.org. Our producer is Kevin Park. Our editor is AJ Valente. And our executive producer is H.J. Lee. You can email us with comments and suggestions at kpod at KoreanAmericanStory.org. You can see Juliana's portraits of our guests and some behind-the-scenes photos at KoreanAmericanStory.org. You can follow Juliana on Instagram at Juliana underscore Song. For news and updates on K-Pod, follow Korean American Story on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.